So good. Good morning, everyone. So awesome to be able to share this morning, and um, what an amazing passage that we get to look at uh, this morning together. And so, um, double check, see if this works. There we go. I don't know if it's the right order, but that's okay. Um, so we're jumping back into the the servant series. It's been about six weeks. Um, we've been in missions May for the last six, I think six or seven weeks. Um, and so before that, uh, we were looking at Matthew's gospel and just going through Matthew's gospel. And we are now in, in chapter 17. And the focus of the, uh, the servant series is Jesus is the Messiah, but as, as Messiah, he is the servant who suffers. And this passage that Janelle has just read for us is an incredible example of Jesus as the suffering servant. And there is a lot going on in this passage, and it's, it's very easy to quickly read through and, and overlook, um, but I want to break it down for us today. Um, but first, I just want to recap, let's see, there we go, recap Matthew 16, because it actually sets up so much context for this chapter. Um, as we know, there are no chapter breaks in real life. Amen. <laughs> uh, so Peter, in, cha- in, in chapter uh, 16, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus calls Peter the rock on which he will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Uh, And Jesus tells his disciples he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and will die and be raised on the third day. And then Peter says, no, Jesus, this will not happen. I will not allow this to happen. And uh, Jesus then rebukes uh, Peter for saying that. And then verse 24 of chapter 16 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So it's important to remember that Matthew's gospel was written to a mostly Jewish audience. Those who first received uh, the the letter that Matthew wrote were mostly Jews, and and it was written with the intent to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He was their king, the king of the Jews, to show proof that through the fulfillment of Scripture, these things about Jesus are true. So when we view the transfiguration narrative through that lens, we, we actually find so much going on in the passage that reveals who Jesus is, both to the original audience, the Jews, and as well as us today. So the title of my message is Revealing Jesus and Responding to Jesus. So I'm just going to pray. Lord, I pray that you would be revealed this morning as, as, I, as I share, God, as we look at your word. I pray that you would be revealed, Jesus, and that uh, just as we have in worship this morning, we have beheld you, Lord. I pray that in our hearts, God, you would, you would stir our hearts and, and reveal yourself to our hearts, Lord, and that we, we could respond in worship to you with our whole lives, Lord. And yeah, I just pray, God, and, and ask that you would speak this morning in Jesus' name. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So the first thing that stood out to me uh, when I started to study this passage was the six days. It was six days later. So we've just read Matthew 16, and 
there's this six days that the the disciples in, in Matthew 16 have just been told Jesus is going to die and rise again. Jesus lays out what it, what it means for them to follow him. And so we can only begin to imagine in these six days what was going on in the group of 12, group of 12 disciples, what they must have been feeling, this, perhaps this heaviness, this weightiness of what Jesus had just told them. And we wonder what was Jesus feeling in these six days leading up to this moment on the mountain? We see it's a familiar situation. Jesus would often go and pray to be with his father on the mountain, uh, sometimes alone and sometimes with his disciples. And uh, we see in Luke's gospel that they were there to pray. And we, we had a leader's retreat yesterday, which was awesome. And we looked at Jesus and how Jesus would retreat. And, and, and we got to practice that as well, which was awesome. But perhaps that this, this moment was just like every other time that they would go and pray. The other interesting thing is that there were only three disciples with Jesus, not 12. There was Peter, who's just confessed Jesus is the Christ and then been rebuked. And then there's two brothers, James and John, John the Beloved, who wrote the Gospel of John. And these we know to be Jesus' closest and most intimate followers. So I just want to imagine this for a moment, this scene, this six days of silence leading up the darkness on the mountain in the night, perhaps the, the, scary, uh, the starry sky and cool temperature, the eyes of the three disciples heavy with sleep, and there's Jesus praying to the Father. We wonder what was Jesus feeling in this moment? What was the content of his prayers? We wonder, would it be a time of prayer free from agony? Could it be that there might be in his heart the cry, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup? as it is later in the garden. And here we find the humanity of Jesus. But then, he sa then it says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And again, this verse is so easy just to read over and, and quickly move on from, but it's, it's powerful what's happening here. The word transfigured speaks of a transformation not merely an outward, in outward appearance, but the effect was so overwhelming that Jesus became so bright in his appearance that he, he shone like the sun. I don't know if you've ever looked at the sun, um, but you can just begin to imagine how bright his face shone. And he spoke about this in the end of the, the previous chapter, chapter 16. He said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here as he was speaking to his disciples, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And other tra translations read, coming in his glory. And here, the three disciples witness the Lord Jesus in his glory. And essentially, this was not a new miracle that Jesus performed, but the temporary end of an ongoing one. The real miracle was that Jesus, most of the time, could keep from displaying his glory. The transfiguration is but a glimpse of the fullness of the glory of Jesus. And imagine this, it must have still only been a glimpse because the disciples didn't die in, in, the, in his presence in that moment. Surely if it had been the fullness of the glory of Jesus, they, they couldn't have withstood it. And so I want to look at the first point today is Jesus is, both, is revealed as both human and divine. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus prayed in his time of need yet the Son of Man is revealed in glory. So what is the lasting effect of this moment of God's glory revealed? 
for Jesus, perhaps in his time of great anguish, praying to the Father, we can presume about Jerusalem and his death that awaits. He's delighted in by his Father, met with the reminder of the glory that awaits him in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. For the disciples, we find, we find James is martyred for his faith in Jesus in the book of Acts. The lasting effect of this moment on the mountain when he saw the glory of Jesus, he, sh- he, he, he gave up his life as a witness to the Messiah. And, and John and Peter both write in their respective books of this awesome moment. And we're going to look at those passages. John 1, uh, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Peter writes, But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The transfiguration is transformative. Let me ask you today, have you seen his glory How has your life been transformed by Jesus as he has revealed himself to you through his word, through time spent in his presence and his nearness? Just like Peter, James, and John, what is the lasting effect of his glory in our lives today? And today the veil is torn. Once we were separated from God, banished from his presence, but now because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we can look fully in his wonderful face. Like we sang this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus. When we come to him, he's revealed in his word, he's revealed as we worship him. What would it be like if our times of coming before him to seek him in his word or in prayer and worship became some of the most transformative moments of our lives? As we seek God, are we being transformed? One of my favorite quotes, you'll probably hear me quote this a lot because I always come back to it, is by J.I. Packer. And it's, uh, the purpose of theology is for the purpose of doxology, meaning the purpose of studying God, the study of God is for the purpose of worship. In our pursuit of God, in our pursuit of knowing God, Are we being transformed or are we just gaining more information and knowledge? Are we falling more in love with Jesus? Let's keep reading. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, some suggest that Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets witnessing that Jesus is Messiah. And we have to understand the, the, the mindset of the disciples that they, they, as Jews, uh, they were expecting a new Moses, which was spoken about in Deuteronomy 18. And they were expecting that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord, which is prophesied by Malachi in the Old Testament. And this is important piece of of background as well for later on in the the text, but both of these are key figures to to these guys. And interestingly, Moses and Elijah both had this in common, that they both had encountered the glory of the Lord on the mountain of Horeb, uh, 
at Mount Sinai and encountered God. And we, we see this happening again here. And, and Luke's gospel actually tells us what they spoke about. They spoke with Jesus of the upcoming work of the cross and, and presumably of the resurrection and ascension as well. And so here is literal Moses and literal Elijah, both bearing witness together to Jesus, who is transfigured before the disciples, and they are sharing in conversation with him. I don't know about you, but if I was one of these disciples, my mind would just be blown. Um, but I want to look here at how Peter responds to Moses and Elijah appearing. And we can imagine Peter. It's the middle of the night. Here they are again on the mountain. Peter's probably picking his nose or something, totally not expecting what's going to happen. And boom, Jesus lights up and Moses and Elijah appear. And Peter is like in awe. Wow, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. How great is it that these ones that we think of so highly, Moses and Elijah, would be standing with our Jesus, the, the one who chose us, little fishermen. However, here again, like we see so often with Peter, like we see in the previous chapter, uh, he makes a bit of a fool of himself. And Mark's gospel says that he didn't know what to say and really probably shouldn't have said anything. Peter reacts impulsively to the situation, just like we see in the previous chapter. First, he says, it is good that we are here. Part of me wonders whether Peter thinks it's good because he knows he gets to go down the mountain and tell the other disciples what he's seeing. He gets to boast of this experience. Hey, guess who I saw on the mountain? I saw Moses and Elijah. And then he says, secondly, if you wish, I will make three tents here. And this is important because the word tent actually refers to tabernacle. <clears throat> and in the Old Testament, the, the Israelites built a tabernacle as a place of worship to the Lord. And so Peter uses similar language to the building of the tabernacle as a place of worship on the mountain. But it seems that Peter's desire to please Jesus so desperately in his desire, he actually worships the moment instead of Jesus. And in doing so, he proposes to Jesus, uh, to he proposes to worship Jesus as well as both Moses and Elijah. And it becomes about what Peter can do for Jesus rather than about who Jesus is and responding to him. But Moses and Elijah are only there to bear witness to Jesus. They're not the great ones, even though to the disciples as Jews, they held Moses and Elijah in such hard, high regard. Jesus was even greater than them. And we see the author of Hebrews even speaks about this. He says, Jesus is greater than Moses. And my second point today is Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. Of course, we worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The point is that Peter makes this mistake of making this moment to worship Jesus, a moment for himself, probably without even realizing he's doing so. And I wonder how we would respond if we were on the mountain in Peter's sandals. And I want to actually hop out of the narrative and consider this. Um, we, can, we can do this a lot in Christian communities, oftentimes without realizing it. And I think it's something that God has highlighted and, and wants us to look at today in, in our own lives. To worship means to give worth to, to give our affections to, our devotion. 
And we give worth to many things in our lives, which if we're not careful, and if we're not keeping our hearts in check, they can so easily become idols. And I believe that God wants us to be free from idols, so we can worship Him wholeheartedly. Let me give some examples of of how this can happen within our Christian community so often. And these are just a few things that I thought about, but I'm sure there's many more. It can be things like worshipping a church building or a type of service, the place. Worshipping the style or traditions of the church, like Peter had such high honour for Moses and Elijah, we can find ourselves worshipping the very things that are there to bear witness to Jesus. It can even be worshipping the music style on a Sunday morning, like certain songs we prefer or singers we prefer, or like Peter does here, he makes it about the moment or the experience. Are we worshipping the lights and the sound? When we regard a leader or pastor so highly that we idolize them or we worship a preaching style or a podcast, someone who is there to witness Jesus to us. Or even worshiping a role that we have, a part that we play, a ministry that we run. Peter says, Lord, it is good that we are here. He valued his role in that moment, made it about himself. Have we built tents to these things in our lives and not realized it? And and some of these things that I'm talking about can be overt, but most of the time they're really subtle and at a heart level that is only between us and God. And I do believe that these things grieve the heart of God and and that we must return to the heart of worship, that we can worship Him and Him alone. Let me say that again. Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. We worship the Father, Son, and Spirit, but the point is not to worship form or style or trend or any external factor, but God alone. And I wish I, I could say that I haven't done this. I wish that I could say I haven't built tents to these things before, And they creep in so subtly and become like idols. But I simply want to pose the question, who or what are we worshipping? And are there any tents that we must pull down? And I encourage you, if there there are things, share them with someone else. Bring things into the light, expose them. As soon as we expose them, they have no power over us. Let's keep reading. He, Peter, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus already was shining like the sun when he was transfigured, and yet an even brighter cloud overshadowed them. No wonder that the disciples were terrified and that there are two hugely important statements made here. Jesus is the Son of God, and we must listen to him. And if there's nothing else you take away from today, point number three is Jesus is the Son of God, and we are called to listen to him. This was the voice of God, and this was the second time in Scripture that we see God declare this. It was spoken to confirm to the disciples, to make known to them that it was their duty to hear Christ rather than any other, to honor Him more than Moses and Elijah, and to strengthen their faith in Him 
when they should go forth to preach the gospel. And after this, it was impossible for them to doubt that he was truly the son of God. Listen to this one. He is my son. He is above Moses and Elijah. Let me ask you this today. Do you recognize Jesus as the son of God? Are you ready to listen to him as Lord and Savior of your life? Maybe you followed him for years and believe that he is the son of God, but have forgotten what it's like to listen. And maybe you've never actually invited Jesus into your heart before. But I want to say, if that's the case, that today is the day of salvation. All those who call upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everyone said amen. Hallelujah. If you'd like to receive Jesus today, you can ask him right now to come into your heart. It's as simple as that. And please come and speak to myself or one of the other pastors and and we'd love to pray with you and talk with you about following Jesus. So this is where the powerful encounter on the mountain suddenly comes to an end and Jesus alone is standing there. Not Moses, not Elijah, only Jesus. And, And the compassion and humanity of Jesus is revealed again here in the way that he speaks to the disciples. Rise and have no fear. The last part of this passage today is the descent down the mountain. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And when the disciples asked him, they asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This passage here could be a whole message in itself. um, But I want to just look at one aspect. And in light of what we've just read, that we are called to listen to Jesus, my bonus point, because four points is too many, <laughs> is that Jesus might all, not always fit into our boxes, but that's why we need to listen to him. The disciples had expectations, how they thought God should be, when the Messiah was meant to come, even the prophetic timeline that they thought they had figured out, what he was meant to do. They imagined God's salvation plan in action. And this is why we must, they must listen to Jesus. The disciples clearly would want to share this experience with everyone when they came down the mountain. I know I would. Um, but Jesus tells them to wait in, in, in the wisdom of God. For it's actually his resurrection that is the completion and glory of his ministry and not the transfiguration. It's important for the confirmation that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's His resurrection that's the completion and glory of His ministry. And secondly, they've just had this wild experience on the mountain. But even so, it seems like Jesus doesn't quite fit their criteria of the Messiah. Based on purely a technicality, 
and based on their understanding of figuring out prophetic scripture. So to give some context, as I was mentioning earlier, the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament prophesied about 400 years before this moment that Elijah would come again before the day of the Lord. And so the Jews expected this. However, they'd just seen Elijah on the mountain, and yet it seemed as though this Elijah had come after Jesus, and they are puzzled by this and question Jesus. But first, Jesus confirms that the prophecy from Malachi is true. Elijah does come and will restore all things, but then immediately confirms the fact that he has come. And as he begins to explain this, the disciples realize that he is speaking of John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah. So even the prophetic scriptures testify and are fulfilled in Jesus. Let me summarize as I, as I close. Moses encountered God in the burning bush. Elijah experienced God's presence in the still, small voice. And in the transfiguration, the disciples experienced God's presence in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They see Jesus' body burning brightly. They hear God's voice say, this is my Son, listen to Him. We see the divinity of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, and the humanity of Jesus in this passage. So what does the transfiguration mean? mean for us today. It means that we can place full confidence in Jesus, the Son of God. We may take that idea for granted today, but this was profound to the Jews and and for the early church. Jesus walked this earth just as we walk the earth. God became man. He was fully man and fully God. The transfiguration revealed who Jesus really was then and who He is for us today. He's the beloved Son of God. He alone is to be worshipped. He alone is to be praised. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. The question for us today is this. Will we listen to Him? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, we just thank you for reminding us to come to you, Lord, to seek your face and to be transformed. God, I pray that, God, as as your followers, we would encounter your glory as the disciples did on the mountain, Lord. I pray that you would reveal in our hearts any, any idols, any tents that we've built God, that, have, that would withhold us from wholeheartedly worshiping you, Lord. And, and yeah, I just pray as well, let our worship be for you alone, Lord Jesus. We just thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are, the Son of God. We behold you this morning. We, we worship you. And I just pray right now as we sing this last song, God, that we would we would worship you, we would give you all the glory that you are worthy of. And as we go into our weeks as well, Lord, would you continue to speak to us from this passage? Would you continue to bring things to our minds, to our hearts, as we walk with you each day? In Jesus' name.